0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, October the 5th, 2023. Yesterday, uh, the excellent uh, research group, Nonprofit Freedom House, came out with their annual Freedom on the Net. 2023 report and it was unfortunately, although probably not particularly surprisingly, rather depressing. It focused on the repressive power of artificial intelligence. Uh, Wired has already picked up on this and one of the co-authors of, um, of this uh, Freedom House report is with me right now. Uh, Keon Vesteinsen is based in Brooklyn, and he co-authored the report. Keon, uh, I'm not going to try, Keon, to make too many jokes about Keon being on Keenon, but um, uh, how how dismal is this report? As a co-author, were you surprised with the depressing conclusions, or were you expecting this?
1: Well, it is It is pretty dismal, Andrew. And, and you know, I always hold that hope that one day I'll be able to say that we found that internet freedom improved around the world. Um, this year, unfortunately, is not that year. Uh, global internet freedom declined for the 13th consecutive year. Now, um, by way of explanation, freedom on the net is our annual country-by-country assessment of internet freedom. And we define this as the basic idea that the rights and protections we all enjoy offline should also be protected online, on the internet. Uh, We look at how easily people can access the internet, whether the internet is censored in a given country, and how the fundamental rights of free expression and privacy may be restricted by governments and companies in those countries. Now, um, unfortunately, again, you know, this is the 13th straight year of decline for internet freedom, Um, so I I can't say it's much of a shocker uh, but there are always um, these beautiful, you know, bright spots that we see around the world that I'm, I'm happy to talk about uh, at length if you if you want to get to some good news at some point in the segment.
0: So you said this has declined 13 years in a row. How long has Freedom House been running this report? Well, we have been running this report since 2009 when we launched a,
1: a pilot. Uh, but the report, as we know it, um, has been in place since 2011. Uh, this year uh, we covered seventy countries, um, and we've been so able. It's to basically make- declined
0: every year that you've been publishing the report. There hasn't been a, an improvement in any way. And in, in other words, when you began the report in two thousand and ten, um, what what was the difference between two thousand and ten and twenty twenty three?
1: That's a really good question, and I mean, um, you know, we're looking now at at more than a decade. Of, of change and what we think about the internet. I think, you know, the project in its early beginnings came um, at a time when people in general really were really optimistic about the promise of the internet for social change. You know, this is, this is at the heels of Barack Obama's uh, you know, digital election um, in 2008, at the heels of the Arab Spring when we saw these incredible mass movements building on social media. Um, And I think in the intervening years, we've really um, come to terms with how that sort of liberatory potential um, comes with a a whole host of of real serious harms. I mean, this year, uh, we found that attacks on free expression are more common than they've ever been before. Um, Two really uh, unfortunate record metrics from our report is that in more than three-fourths of the countries covered by the project, people faced arrest simply for expressing themselves online about political or social or religious ideas. Um, And we also found a record high of 41 governments that imposed website blocks on websites featuring, you know, again, political, social or or religious content. This is, you know, independent media outlets. These are LGBTQ rights organizations in these countries or, you know, members of, of religious or ethnic minorities that are using the Internet to um, you know, build their own communities. Um, those are the kinds of, of websites that we see increasingly targeted around the world.
0: Keon, let's step back from this a little bit as much as we can. Uh, many political scientists have written about the decline of democracy around the world since 2010. People like Larry Diamond, who's been on the show and many other uh, writers and historians. To what extent is this decline in online freedom mirrored by the decline offline?
1: That's a really, um, I think this is is something that's really borne out in in our research as well. Um, My colleagues put out what we call our our freedom in the world report, um, which looks at political rights and civil liberties in every country and territory around the world. Um, and as I, I'm sure will be unsurprising to your viewers, um, those uh, researchers have found that democratic rights and institutions are, are being really undermined globally. So I think it's, it's certainly the case that we see that the sort of degradation of the civil rights and political liberties that undergird strong democracies, that when those are are um, in decline that that's um, matched in the offline space as well. But the flip side um, here, Andrew, is that I, you know I think we find that when uh, countries bolster their democratic institutions, that we see uh, real meaningful benefits um, for internet freedom as well. Um, you know one standout example here is the Gambia. Um, you know the Gambia is is in our index and freedom on the net the country that has seen the greatest improvement over the past decade. Um, And it's no coincidence that that past decade has seen the people of the Gambia oust the long-term dictator, Yahya Jameh, and start to rebuild the country's democratic institutions in the wake of of Jameh's repressive regime. Um, And with that democratic rebuilding has come some really important landmarks um, for internet freedom in the Gambia. Um, People are able to express themselves online uh, in ways that were never possible in the Jema era without fear of being locked up or or beaten in retaliation. And we've seen really impressive landmarks like the passage of an access to information bill. That means Gambians can learn more about their government and achieve real victories for transparency. So, you know, all this to say certainly the decline of, of democracy and the decline in global Internet freedom go hand in hand. Um, but I think there's a kernel of of room for for optimism here in in pushing back against those trends.
0: Kian, the promise of the internet was as a global medium, a global platform, which physical boundaries, nation states were no longer relevant. When when you do your analysis, um, are you doing this on a national basis? A few years ago, there was a book out called *The Splinter Net*, which talked about the global internet splintering into a, a Russian internet, an Iranian internet, a Chinese internet, an American internet. To what extent is there a connection between this decline in online freedom and the splintering of the internet into uh, different internets?
1: You know, these—I I think these two things are, are inextricable inextricably linked. Now, so let me give the the boring methodology answer to the question and then maybe talk about um, sort of the the premise here. So our report looks at the conditions of being online in a given country. So we really focus on the experience of internet users um, in Myanmar versus an internet user in Nigeria versus an internet user in Colombia. Um, and our, uh, our methodology seeks to assess um, the conditions on the ground for those people in a given country, and then also create opportunities for comparison. But we found over the years that uh, it, is, it is certainly true that some governments are seeking to carve out their own domestic internet spaces. Uh, you know, I think the, the beautiful um, idiom of the internet as a network of networks Um, does, uh, in fact, um, you know, uh, show that a network can be removed from that network of networks, right? Um, And so we found that authorities in in, uh, countries like Russia, China, Iran, um, are seeking to carve out their own digital spaces for uh, increased censorship and control. And that means creating systems that allow them to separate those domestic internets from the global internet. Now, obviously, there's incredibly serious repercussions for this. That means people in those countries may be cut off from global social media platforms where they can express themselves freely and exchange information with people around the world. Um, And it also means that they're more subject to the whims of the government when it comes to restrictions on online content or repressive new surveillance systems.
0: We are speaking with Kian I uh, uh, born in Iceland, now based in Brooklyn, works for Freedom House, one of the co-authors of Freedom of the Net 2023. Uh, it's a depressing conversation, but also an, an incredibly important one. Uh, Kian, you talked about Russia, China, Iran, and those kind of countries. I mean, they are in themselves the three biggest problems are they for internet freedom, particularly Russia and China, I'm guessing?
1: So they're certainly um, extraordinarily um, influential, I would say. You know, I think one uh, thing that really comes out in our research is that um, repressive governments learn from one another. Um, you know, when it comes to digital authoritarianism and digital repression, uh, these are technologies and tactics that can be exchanged. And so certainly, Um, you know, the governments of of China and Russia and Iran can be extraordinarily influential. Um, But unfortunately, you know, they're um, uh, uh, not solely the the worst um, environments in the world for internet freedom. We found this year, actually, that Myanmar came close to surpassing China as the world's worst, second worst environment for internet freedom now. So, you know, in Myanmar, uh, since February 2021, Has been under control of a military junta and the junta has really cemented an incredibly expansive censorship regime um the the myanmar military and its network of informants use platforms like telegram to share information on dissidents and then uh this permits authorities to identify detain and in some cases actually disappear people and this is over you know extraordinarily small trivial things um, you know, there are reports of multiple people um, who, uh, in uh, the anniversary of the coup, changed their uh, social media profile photos to a black square to sort of commemorate um, this, uh, you know, really serious uh, and a terrible moment. Um, people were uh, reported on for changing their profile photos, picked up by military officials and disappeared into the prison system, which is, uh, you know, incredibly um, uh dark and, and repressive place and in one egregious case um, the military actually executed a prominent activist uh in july after they arrested him over his pro-democracy social media posts so you know these these really um uh, incredibly prominent abusers of internet freedom like russia iran uh, and china are unfortunately being joined um, by the the coup authorities in myanmar
0: when you're doing these reports i i mean obviously the, the the um the myanmar example you bring up is chilling and extremely depressing uh just as the the example of gambia is is promising and encouraging but i don't know how many people live in myanmar probably what 20 25 million versus the the billions of people who live in china how, how do you apportion that in terms of your your, your, your state of the internet? Do you analyze each country in terms of its population and importance? Or do you treat each country as being as important as the next one?
1: Yeah, this is a really, um, a really good, uh, a good question.
0: You know, now, how say- many people live in Myanmar? I, I, I apologize for my ignorance here. I'm guessing 20, 25 million. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, though. I, you know,
1: funnily enough, uh, that, well, not funnily, um, but the Myanmar military will be conducting a census in 2024, and um, already looking um, to see how they can use that census as a method of, of um, censorship and, and, and greater surveillance to um, embed that within the, the, census, the census itself. Um, so, you know, population metrics can sometimes themselves be this sort of vector for digital repression. But you know, what I'll say um, in response to your question. Um, you know, our, uh, I think one of the, the strongest parts of our project is that we work with this um, network of civil society activists around the world to produce these country assessments. So for every country that we cover, we're working with um, someone who is based in that country, who's a journalist, an activist, a lawyer, someone who works on the issues um, on the ground to produce these country assessments. Um, certainly in some cases, uh, it's, it's not safe for us to work with someone in country um, for a variety of reasons. And in those circumstances, we'll um, you know, work with someone who is living in exile um, or a member of, of the, the diaspora. But um, in doing so, we, we are able to, to build our assessments from the ground up to really understand the experience of being in the internet um, in that given country. Um, and as such, we want to be able to assess the information controls that are in place um, for people in that country and take them as they are. Um, But comparison is a really important part of our project. And part of what we aim to do by creating this index is to allow for us to um, compare environments that are completely different and geographically disparate and understand um, what it's like to be online in that country. Now, um, in terms of population, we do assess Um, some of our uh, metrics by by the number of population. Um, Our index covers uh, about 88, 89% of the world's internet users. And we do assess the breakdown of uh, that population um, in terms of, you know, how, um, uh, uh, you know, what percentage of the population may be living in a country that's extremely repressive, ranked not free on our index. Those data are available on our website uh, on freedomonthenet.org.
0: Kian, we've mentioned China, Russia, Iran, Myanmar. A lot of people are going to be scratching their heads and saying, what about the U.S.? Uh, Maybe not quite as free as it'd like to be. Facebook's darkest moment, and it's had many dark moments, is in its role in uh, the terrible strife and persecutions in Myanmar. How does America come out of this, both in terms of the behavior of its large big tech corporations, And in terms of actual freedom of online expression in in America in 2023?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's really um, it's really quite interesting. You know, the the Biden administration has really worked to put the promotion of Internet freedom as a top priority of its foreign policy agenda. So the US stepped into the chairship of the Freedom Online Coalition, which is this network of governments that are seeking to advance free expression online. Um, And as the the chair, the US has really worked to expand um, the membership and diversify the membership of the FOC. Uh, The Biden administration also created a new bureau that's dedicated to digital policy within the State Department um, and worked to embed American leadership uh, at the International Telecommunications Union, which is this incredibly important um, standard setting body for the international internet. Um, and of course, um, I'm sure uh, uh, many will be familiar with the Declaration for the Future of the Internet, this multi-government effort to, to establish high-level commitments um, uh, on internet freedom. But uh, you know, despite this, this great momentum on the foreign policy level, there simply has not been that same level of action on the domestic level. Um, Certainly, uh, you know, I should acknowledge that uh, President Biden and the administration have taken some um, executive level actions um, that are are pretty significant. Um, You know, one notable example of this uh, was the executive order that prohibited US government use of commercial spyware products that pose a risk to U.S. national security. Um, that came out in the spring and obviously is a landmark achievement. But, uh, you know, certainly at the legislative level, the U.S. is not doing enough. Uh, the U.S. still lacks a comprehensive federal privacy law, and the U.S. has failed to meaningfully reform national security surveillance protocols that are um, incredibly problematic. Um, you know, We've even seen that government agencies are by, bypassing uh, warrant the, the federal warrant, excuse me, the judicial warrant requirement um, by purchasing Americans' data from you know shadowy data brokers. So there's a lot of change that needs to happen on the domestic level, um, and and certainly I, I really hope that um, once uh, the current. Um, uh, uh, drama over the speakership is is resolved in Congress. That we see some more mem- momentum on on passing meaningful privacy and uh, uh, platform regulation here in the U.S.
0: How hardcore libertarian is Freedom House and indeed your your report? I mean, some people might say there's too much freedom on the internet, especially when it comes to social media. Too much freedom to express hatred towards minority groups, people of different skin colors and sexualities, in some ways, um, should we celebrate perhaps more stringent controls on what people can and can't say about other people on social media in particular?
1: Yeah, so let me put it like this. You know, it's a democratic imperative
0: to uphold
1: free expression online. But I think it's very clear that the laissez-faire approach to platform regulation has failed us. Um, you know, we are seeing really dramatic spikes in in um, uh, the data that's available about the, the actual harm that um, unrestricted uh, the the unrestricted era of platform regulation has produced. Whether it's in terms of spiraling hate speech on harassment when a platform file, file excuse me fires all of its uh, trust and safety staff. Um, or you know the continuing evidence that these platforms are um, a venue for disinformation about elections, um, but the act of regulating these platforms has to be really narrow and fit to purpose, and keep safeguards for human rights at the center. So you know one example of this is is um, you know we we unequivocally need stronger regulation that imposes genuine transparency requirements on social media companies. That includes greater transparency about their content moderation practices, their use of content recommendation algorithms, uh, and other sorts of of platform systems, and uh, more information about how these platforms are using our data when we use them. Um, It's critical that these platforms be required to give independent researchers, trusted, vetted independent researchers, access to data about what's happening on these platforms, Uh, These transparency measures can inform um, further policy measures down the line. But the fact of the matter is, right now, we simply don't understand enough about how these platforms work, about how they operate to pass um, smart and narrow policy responses to some of these online harms.
0: We are speaking with Kian uh, Vestynson from Freedom House, the co-author of an important new report, a report. I was going to say a repressive report, um, a depressing <laughs> report on freedom of the net tw- in 2023. It's declined for the 13th year in a row. This is all, of course, about Liberties. I need to remind you of our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, a journal that celebrates freedom in a different way, perhaps a, a more intellectual way, uh, rather than doing the kind of research that uh, Keen and the guys at Freedom House is doing. But both are doing a great job. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties. And then I want to come back and in the, the final segment of the show talk specifically about AI, and its impact on freedom of the net. So don't go away, anyone we will be back with Kian Vesteinsen uh, from uh, Freedom House. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Kian uh, Vestainsen from Freedom House. He is the co-author of an important new report. It was out yesterday. Freedom on the Net 2023. The repressive power of artificial intelligence. Kian, in the first couple of segments, we talked more broadly about what was happening on the net. But fill us in on AI. Why is AI now contributing to the crisis of online freedom yeah let, let's dive into
1: this and, and before we do um i i should uh make a little disclaimer which is that you know ai in general as a set of technologies offer some really exciting and beneficial use cases um, you know, I think we can uh, easily brainstorm, um, you and I, Andrew, you know, some really important and, and critical uh, applications of these, of these tech for science research, for healthcare purposes, um, you name it. But when we look at some narrow applications of these measures, uh, when l- we're looking at generative AI tech um, or some uh, you know, automated content removal systems, we find that the uptake of AI has increased the scale, speed, and efficacy of digital repression. Um, you know, Namely, the fact that generative AI tools are increasingly accessible and affordable for everyday audiences has lowered the barrier of entry to the disinformation market. And we can also find that governments are increasingly using or requiring the use of automated systems to conduct more precise and subtle forms of censorship. Now, that said, uh, the more conventional uh, tactics for disinformation and censorship are still a part of our information landscape. AI has not completely displaced the standout methods of controlling online information flows um, or manipulating online narratives, but it's certainly acting as a force multiplier already and uh, uh, we found some really distressing signs that this may actually um, be increasing uh, as these tools become more and more in use.
0: What's the point of these reports, uh, Kian? I mean, you don't make the decision on, on whether or not they're put out there. You're you're the researcher, but I, I'm I'm pretty sure that. The people in Moscow or Beijing or or Tehran, they're not too bothered by this. Who who is your audience and what are you trying to do with these reports? Yes, certainly I I can't say that uh, the
1: CCP is is calling up Freedom House and and asking for a meeting about what um, they should be doing differently. Um, You know, we have a a couple of different audiences here. Um, And I'll say that uh, uh, at a very high level, the point of our report is to call attention to how governments and companies can be doing better when it comes to safeguarding human rights online. So we want to make sure that we're working uh, with um, governments that are interested in making change um, to respond to the analysis that we put out. And that includes stakeholders um, in the U.S. government, for example, but also governments around the world that um, want to understand how their policy decisions are undermining privacy or interfering with freedom of expression. We also wanna extend that same branch to companies. Um, our reports often capture um, some of the darkest ways that social media platforms and communication tools can exacerbate very real world harms. Um, you know, uh, Our country narratives about, of which we put out 70 um, look at some um, really staggering examples of how social media tools have been used to inflame hate speech Uh, in countries on on the verge of crisis. And so we wanna make sure that we work with those platforms to um, strengthen their policies and procedures for responding to such um, real risks. Um, And finally, our audience is uh, the international community of civil society organizations, activists, and ordinary people who really care about free expression and privacy. Um, we do this work uh, in community with some really fantastic researchers, advocates, and activists. Um, and uh, you know it's a, a personal priority for me to make sure that um, these uh, reports can get in the hands of as, as many people who can use them um, in ways that I can't even conceive of
0: so you're you're suggesting that there are three constituencies when it comes to audience: governments, private corporations, and and the broader public. It's clear that the broader public, of course, uh, would, would would want to see, I'm guessing, certainly in the West, would want to see more internet freedom. Let's address the government one and the corporate one. Uh, the corporate one first it, it, is, I'm talking to you from San Francisco in, on the edge of Silicon Valley. Do you think that big tech cares about this? Do you think that the players, the dominant players, Amazon, that, of course, pioneered a lot of surveillance at work, Facebook that has a, a profoundly troublingly checkered record, Google as well, do these companies really care about online freedom or or, or is this just a, a kind of a liberal whitewashing they do whenever reports like this come out?
1: Yeah, you know I can't speak to to what a, a company's board thinks um, and, and certainly what the company as a standalone entity thinks. Um, but when it comes to these uh, uh, big tech companies, I found that there are people inside who really do deeply care about protecting the experience of their users um, and their, their human rights. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for the collaborations uh, that uh, we've been able to build as an organization and as a community of, of activists with those folks inside companies who are willing to use their platforms to push for change. Um, And I certainly uh, uh, want to acknowledge that, um, you know, there are folks within the companies who try really hard to um, put free expression and privacy and other rights um, at the core of the agenda. Um, But I will say that, you know, we've seen um, some really uh, concerning momentum away for this over the past year. Um, There's been a real clear shifting of resources away from uh, trust and safety and human rights teams within tech companies. And I think that really casts doubt on the industry's willingness and capacity to um, work for these sorts of issues on their own. Um, You know, I'm sure your your, uh, viewers will be familiar with the um, slashes to teams that work on information integrity, human rights, trust and safety, um, what have you, um, across uh, the tech industry over the past year. Um, And, you know... Really, concerningly, some companies have also pared back their public
0: transparency. What, what companies in particular, the one that comes to mind, of course, is X, uh, the um, Elon Musk's, the, the, the company formerly known as Twitter, uh, which has always been imagined as the town square for the world. Is, is, is this exhibit A when it comes to the responsibility of corporations to defend freedom?
1: It's certainly, I think, the most dramatic example of this, Um, you know, uh, certainly in the reversal of of, um, platform policy and priorities in the transition to X. But, you know, frankly, you know, we saw these sorts of layoffs touching trust and safety teams and election teams, um, you know, at Meta, at Twitch, at Google, at Snap, at Microsoft. This has really been across the industry over the past year. And, And certainly I want to acknowledge that this came you know, on the heels of economic concerns, I know there was a great deal of, of fear over a, you know a tech recession um, for a, a number of, of months. Um, but it, it is really concerning to see that companies are wagering that they can address these really critical problems without the human expertise that has been really foundational to protecting users on their platforms.
0: And speaking of human expertise. Uh, We've done a number of shows on these large corporations and AI. We had a show with Margaret Mitchell who got fired at Google. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other shows with Gary Marcus and a very influential AI thinker. Is this particularly concerning uh, when it comes to AI and the way in which these companies are not allowing or many of the companies are allowing uh, freedom of debate within the companies about the implications of AI on freedom?
1: Listen, you know, I think it's it's important for to acknowledge that this is a, a live issue. You know, I think we as a society um, are, are kind of confronting the problem that AI, generative AI poses for the information space. Obviously, there have been um, thinkers, Margaret Mitchell among them, who have been working on this issue for the better part of a decade. Um, and certainly uh, in our research, we relied on, on um, that uh, incredible body of research work. Um, And I think it's important that, uh, you know, regulators and companies alike are are making sure that those, uh, uh, that body of work is getting the prominence it deserves as we're thinking about how to build our institutions to be more resilient to this um, percolation of of generative AI tools. Um, You know, certainly, I think it's clear in our research that um, governments and uh, the sorts of pro-government networks that they employ will be increasing their reliance on AI tools to manipulate online spaces. I mean, we found uh, in our research that generative AI was used in at least six countries over the past year to sow doubt, smear opponents or influence public debate. And this was often in contexts where the country was uh, going through a moment of increased political tensions like an election um, or mass protests. Um, So certainly the uh, introduction of these sorts of generated or manipulated content contributed to a decaying information space. Um, And I say this because I, I think it's really an imperative that companies step up their ability to be resilient to this form of information manipulation on their platforms. Um, for the uh, you know Twitters and, and Facebooks of the world, that means really investing in uh, reinvesting in their trust and safety capacity. For AI companies, it means being receptive to um, the uh, feedback and recommendations from researchers and civil society about how they can build uh, effective watermarking tools, for instance, um, and other sorts of measures that can be put in place to um, increase resilience to AI-assisted manipulation. And of course, it's a call for governments as well to step up, uh, step to the plate um, and, and pass policy that meaningfully regulates AI to protect information integrity and human rights.
0: Kian, finally, uh, you mentioned Gambia as a model where there was more internet freedom this year than last year. What about the models of government regulation protecting freedom? Uh, you. You seem somewhat ambivalent about the Biden administration. Do we need to look to the EU again and to politicians like Margaret Vestager, in, in, who's been on this show, who I know quite well, uh, as the model for addressing this stuff? Are the Europeans, do the, does the EU get it better than anyone else when it comes to the responsibility of government to preserve online freedom? I mean, certainly, I think we're seeing some really uh,
1: interesting measures um, taken by the EU. Um, The the DSA, the Digital Services Act, uh, you know, this is a big experiment that's playing out right now. Um, And there's certainly elements of the DSA that I think are really strong when it comes to protecting rights. There's also elements that uh, uh, may go a step too far in putting controls on, on freedom of expression online. Um, you know, when it comes to, the, to to regulating the sorts of problems of AI that we're we're talking about, um, you know, I think the EU uh, is taking a really positive step forward here with the AI Act, um, which does some uh, pretty impressive work of, of centering human rights and in artificial intelligence deployment um, and the development of such tools. Um, you know, it, it's certainly noteworthy that uh, the draft text, one of the draft texts of the EUI Act. Um, seeks to prohibit the use of AI and technologies that are widely known to infringe on human rights, like, uh, you know, so-called predictive policing tools or real-time biometric identification measures. You know, I think these are a really strong starting points, certainly something to look forward to. Um, but obviously, the AI Act text is, is not settled. And I think it's really um, potentially an area of concern that this text could be watered down, including at the hands of, of law, lobbying by tech companies. So um, certainly I think there's, there's room for hope here with the EU's regulation, but it's something that uh, isn't, isn't settled down yet.
0: And finally, uh, Kion, um, you've done great work here, you and your fellow authors, uh, Ali Fank, Adrian uh, Shabazz and yourself on this Freedom of the Net Report 2023, The Repressive Power of Artificial Intelligence. Uh, for people who care about this stuff, what should they be doing? Joining Freedom House, donating free, donating money or resources, or perhaps even their own labor. What can ordinary people do? Well,
1: certainly, uh, you know, visit our website at freedomhouse.org. Um, if you're keen to donate, um, certainly would would welcome those contributions. Um, you know, what I'd say is that um, there is movement on every level of government um, of folks who are thinking about privacy and free expression in local communities. And I really encourage folks to, um, you know, obviously read our report, understand the risks, understand the recommendations, and take that forward in their their own countries and and contexts. The beautiful thing about our project is is that we do cover, um, you know, an incredible diversity of environments. Um, And that means that there's an incredibly diverse set of, of changes that people are advocating for to protect their human rights online. Um, And so I really encourage uh, uh, people to um, learn more about what's going on and in their specific country context um, and use our reports as, as scaffolding to push for change.